Hey, my name is Casey Nixon. Rick is at a wedding, a family wedding in Tennessee, so he couldn't be here. Uh, and like I told you the first week, you're already here, so you might as well stay and hear me out, right? And you'll wish you had Rick back next week, but that's good. That's pastors do that all the time. It's an old pastor trick. Make you appreciate us more. Um, so, you know, I, it was kind of interesting as I was sitting down, I was thinking about everybody wearing masks, and, and I'm not, but I promise I'll stay six week, feet away from all of you. Um, don't worry, I won't cough on anybody, uh, but you wouldn't hear me very well if I had my mask on. So, yeah, so we, 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 you know, if you look around, there's a lot of cause for fear right now. There's a virus going around, there's tropical storms, there's protests, there's guns, there's war. Every time we look around, there's a reason to be afraid. But when we look up, there's reason for hope. There's reason for great hope. In fact, our hope has to be found by looking up because our hope and our happiness as believers is always going to be found in our perspective and not our circumstances. Amen? We can't control our circumstances. We can't control the world around us, but we can control what we focus on. And when we focus on God and the things of the kingdom, it gets better. We get filled with hope and we have reason to rejoice and be happy and look forward to the future. That is what the gospel is all about. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. So if you've been joining us online, if you've been joining us here, we've been talking about the who, what, when, where, why of the gospel. And if you remember the very first week we talked about the gospel, I said it's the improbable story of God's love. Because he left this story with 12 ordinary men, probably high school, early college age men who were filled with fear. They were filled with shortcomings. They were filled with sin. They looked just like you and me. And God entrusted the entire story with them to take it out to the rest of the world, to pass it on, to show God's love and to spread it to every person as they went. And it's eventually reached you and I, and here we have it to send out into the world. That's the improbable story of the gospel. And then we talked about the why, because the why is the most important part. Why does it even matter? Why does it even concern us to know what this gospel message is? And we talked about the why being because God wants to dwell with us forever. The gospel was God's plan to come back and dwell with mankind just like he did in the garden before sin came and ruined everything right? That's the why of the gospel. And we talked about who the gospel has a name. Jesus. Jesus sums up the gospel story, which is God's love for humanity, his love for his creation, and his desire to be with us into eternity. The gospel has a name. It's Jesus. The what? The what of the gospel. It's all about your life transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, it's God's down payment on his presence into eternity. Amen? We're going to get the Holy Spirit when we become believers, when we choose to follow Jesus Christ. We're going to get the Holy Spirit, and it's a down payment on God's presence forever. One day we'll get to hang out with him like we hang out, two people together. We'll be able to see him. We'll be able to experience him. One day it's going to be incredible. We're going to talk about that one day in just a minute. The what of the gospel is all about the power to transform your life. Where? 
It's inside of you and I. Rick told us the gospel's inside of us, and every time love comes out of us, the gospel is going forward. Every time we do kingdom work in God's name, the gospel is going forward. Every time we show the world what Jesus is all about, the gospel is going forward. It's in us, and it comes out to others. So this week, we're going to talk about when. And the win of the gospel is one that I like and Rick let me have because it's a, a little bit more academic. There's a little bit more of, a, of an, a doctrinal understanding you have to have of the whole Bible to really get the win of the gospel because the win of the gospel is now but not yet. It's already but yet to come. You guys ever heard that? The gospel's about Jesus and the kingdom being here, being present now, but not fully. In fact, Paul was writing and he told the Corinthian church this. He said, for now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... When the perfect comes, we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God knows us and he loves us and he's revealed himself to us, but not completely. We haven't seen him yet. We see glimpses of him. It's like looking in a mirror. We have a dim reflection of what's to come, but this pales in comparison to what is to come. Now, here's the cool part. So I told you the first week we gathered, I told you that the Bible was, was a circle, not a line, right? It's easy to think of the Bible as a line through history because it starts at the beginning and it ends at the very end of all things, and it goes kind of chronologically for the most part, right? But it's really a circle, and it's centered on Jesus and the gospel message that God wants to spend forever with us. That's the Bible. Now, you have to understand throughout the Old Testament there were these things called prophecies, right? We talked about, I think, week two, that there were prophets and priests, right? That was the system of, of Judaism in the Old Testament. There are prophets and priests. The priests bring the cry of the people up to God, and prophets bring God's word down to the people, right? You remember that? Okay, so when God's word came down to the people, they had prophecies. It was a foretelling of something that was to come. It's really cool, almost all of them had an immediate fulfillment. Something that the hearers would have recognized in their lifetime or in their children's generation. Something that was going to happen pretty close. And then there was always a greater future fulfillment that was even greater than the first, but like it. And it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. Just like Adam was a foreshadowing of Jesus and Jesus is going to come back and perfect all things. There are a lot of things in the Bible that have an immediate fulfillment, but a greater future fulfillment. Now, as you go through the Old Testament as well, the, the Jews really didn't have a concept of two comings of the Messiah. Okay? Now, Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. You guys probably know that, right? One's Hebrew, one's Greek. If we say Jesus the Messiah or Jesus Christ, Christ Messiah, same thing. They had no concept that the Messiah was going to come twice. So they were looking for a, a definitive sign that the Messiah had come. And they thought that sign would look something like an earthly kingdom. That the Messiah would come, he would set up an earthly kingdom, he would overthrow Rome, 
That's what would happen. And they were looking for that. They had no concept that the kingdom was going to come in two phases. It was going to come as Jesus the Savior and then come back, we know in the book of Revelation, as Jesus the Judge. They didn't really understand that. And so there are all these examples throughout the New Testament where Jesus tells these parables about the kingdom being here and not yet. He says the kingdom is, is here, but it's still to come. That's basically what he tells them. The Pharisees are arguing when, with Jesus in Luke 17, and, and Jesus says, no, the kingdom's not coming with signs to behold. You won't be able to say, lo, there it is. Over there is the kingdom. He says the kingdom is already in your midst. He's talking about himself, right? But he also told a parable in Luke 19, and he said the kingdom is like a, a, a king who goes to a far-off country to receive his kingdom and prepare it and then returns to gather his people. Kingdom is here, but it's not here fully. That's what Jesus was saying. But they did have a concept, and it's really important. I think it's really important for us to understand today, the Israelites did have a concept of already, but not yet. They just weren't putting the pieces together. But we have the whole scripture, right? So we can put the pieces together. Check this out. And I think this is the, the part that the whole Bible hangs on. That's a big statement. I know, that's a big statement. And some of you are thinking, oh man, that's big. But I'm telling you, if you don't understand Genesis 15, you're missing a huge chunk of the whole Bible. Because everything in the New Testament is predicated on Genesis 15. And I'm going to tell you why. Just stick with me, okay? So this is what was written. Now let me just give you a little context. Genesis 15, we're talking about Abram. And we're talking about the promise that is to come of the nation of Israel, right? This is kind of the foundation. Abram is like, he becomes Abraham, and then he has Isaac, right? And Isaac has Jacob, and that's the father, and they kind of go all the way through the nation of Israel. The whole Old Testament kind of begins right here. The story shifts from being the story of all humanity to being the story sort of of God and his chosen people, right? That's Genesis 15. And Genesis 15 is where communion really begins. It's where the covenant symbology of communion really takes place. So we can't really understand communion until we understand Genesis 15. You see now why I think the whole Bible kind of hangs a little bit on Genesis 15. But this is what happens. Uh, let's see. Well, we'll jump in. Then the Lord says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Let me pause there for a second. He's giving him this promise. He's saying, don't worry, I'm going to make your, uh, your descendants number the stars. And if you remember, Abram says, but Lord, I don't even have descendants. I don't even have an heir. In fact, all of my property, it's going to go to one of my servants. One of my hired help, they're going to get my stuff. I don't even have a child. God says, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm telling you, Abram, I'm telling you I have a plan. It's a future plan. I'm going to give you an heir. In fact, I'm going to give you an heir, and your heirs are going to number all the stars in the sky. Without end, you won't be able to count them all. That's a pretty big promise, right? So that's what he's told him. But he's telling him, but... But your heirs are going to be servants. They're going to be slaves of other people. Now, we know that ends up being the nation of Egypt, right? And there's going to be a great exodus, but it's going to take 400 years. 
But the key, and this is again why the whole Bible, I think, really kind of hangs on Genesis 15. The key is God tells him, I'm going to make your descendants heirs. I'm going to give them a land. I'm going to set them up, but it's going to be 400 years. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, if you remember the Bible story at all, if you've been around church at all, you know that uh, there's this great exodus. There are some plagues. God delivers his people. They cross the Red Sea. God parts it. They cross on dry land. Some amazing stuff. Some stuff that, again, is, is kind of part of that improbable story, right? It's stuff that only God can do. And they go to this land called the Promised Land, and the original inhabitants of the Promised Land, just like we as, as, as Westerners are not the original inhabitants of this continent, they were not the original inhabitants of the Promised Land. There were already people there. Those people were Amorites. Now that figures prominently throughout the whole Old Testament. If you understand some of the regional conflicts that happen, some of the people that persecute God's people, it's built in this. But for today's discussion, the issue here is, what does God tell him? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God says, I'm going to give you land that's not yours. And I'm going to throw the people that are there out for you. Because they're sinners. But I'm going to give them 400 years to repent. Now, I know they're not going to do it. But I'm going to give them a chance. Because I'm a God of love and patience and mercy. I'm not going to punish them until they've had a chance to repent. I want to give them the opportunity. Now, I know they're not going to do it, so don't worry, Abram, it's yours. I'm going to send your descendants there, but it's going to take time because they need time to repent. That's important because we're going to jump forward about 3,000 years and we're going to read the words of Peter. Remember, Peter was the chief of the 12. He was the head disciple. He was rash. He was not a patient man. Patience and Peter never went together. Peter jumps in. Before he thinks about it, he sticks his foot in his mouth. He cleaned his shoes a lot. They were always going in. That's Peter. And here's what Peter says. But do not overlook this one fact. One fact. He says, this is important. If you distill it all down, do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord doesn't keep time like we do. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Remember back to Genesis 15? God is patient. He is patient in fulfilling what is to come because he's giving people an opportunity to turn to him, to recognize that they're falling short, that they can't do it on their own, and that they need something to save them. People are drowning, and they don't know what to do, so they keep fighting, and God's throwing them a lifeline. That's what Peter says. He says he wishes that, wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance, that's a word that just means turning around, that they should turn from their ways and turn toward him. That's all that word means. It's a fancy church word that means turn around. Stop going down that path and go down this other path. That's 
what that means. That's what Peter says God is doing. And Peter knows the scriptures well, so he's tying it back to the original promise in Genesis. God is patient. And that's the story of the gospel. Jesus came and he came to save. He says, I came to seek and save the lost, not to judge. But he is coming back as a judge, right? If you read to the end of the book and you get to Revelation, we find out that he comes back on a white horse as a judge of all mankind. But it hasn't taken place yet. Now, if you look around, lots of my friends are saying it's coming soon. Look around. The signs are here. All these things point to what God already prophesied or foretold is going to happen. The end is imminent. But Peter tells us, don't count God as slow. He's not asleep. He's waiting patiently so that the gospel message can go forward to everybody who will receive it so that everybody has a chance to find me before I come back and judge the sin of the world. I think there's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. I think he was an amazing writer. He said things that I only wish came out of my mouth. He said, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great cab campaign of sabotage. That's the story of the gospel. The rightful king has landed and he's come because he wants to rescue you and me. He wants to rescue us from our sinful ways, and give us a better life to create in us the people he wants to spend eternity with so that he can spend eternity with us. God wants to be your best friend. How crazy is that? He created the world. I mean, I picture, I don't mean to digress, but I picture creation when I read through the account in Genesis and I'm just thinking, so there, there's the Trinity, right? There's the Holy Spirit and there's Jesus and there's God and they're in heaven and they, they're from the beginning. Actually, if you read the original text, it kind of intimates they're before the beginning, which doesn't really make sense to us because we keep time the way humans keep time, but they were before the beginning. And they're up there and they're creating everything and you got to think about it. There's some crazy stuff out there. I mean, they created the ostrich. God was really like, I don't know, let's stretch it out a little. Turn it pink. Perfect. And then there's the skunk. Why? I don't know. We should give it uh, spray, smelly spray. That's a good defense. No, not teeth. No, we already did teeth. Do, do the smelly spray. Racing stripe, he needs a racing stripe. Wouldn't that have been a fun day in heaven? Creation day, I mean, when they're creating everything. God, who created all of that, wants to be best friends with you and me. How cool is that? But he needed a way because we're broken and we're sinful. So he created a way. He said something has to pay the price. And you and I can't afford it because we're not perfect. So he sent his only son. He sent his only son from heaven, from his throne, to be born in a stable, the lowest of the low, to live a common life, to be beaten and mocked and unjustly murdered for you and me. 
because that was the only way. That's the story of the gospel. And the issue is once we understand that, we're left with, as we are after most things, we're left to decide, so what are you going to do about it? Right? Anytime truth is revealed to us in the scriptures, anytime God speaks to our hearts and it gives us this nugget of wisdom or truth, we're always left with the choice. So what do you do about it? Now, for some, you're still deciding, do I want to hitch my cart to that horse? Do I, wanna, do I really want to go in for that? Am I really all in for this Jesus thing? I hope you are. I think it's the best way to be. I think it is uh, the thing that makes the most sense to me because with Jesus, we find a hope that we don't find anywhere else. In Jesus, we find a, a power over this life that we don't find anywhere else. Now, it's not the completed power. It's not the power we'll have one day, but the power we have in Christ is immense. For some of you, you've already made that choice. You've already decided that Jesus is who he said he was, that God's plan is a plan of love for your life, and you're already in. So then the question becomes, are you going to keep it and hoard it? Are you going to lock it up in a safe deposit box, stick it in your drawer to make sure you don't lose it? Or are you going to go out and give it away? Because the world needs what you have. If you've found the love and hope that is found in Jesus Christ, the world needs that. The world is full of fear. It's full of hate. It's full of prejudice. It's full of brokenness. And the only antidote for that is Jesus Christ. If you don't have him, get him before you leave. Talk to me, talk to Taryn, talk to Tyler, talk to another believer here. Get your questions answered and make a decision. Because he's coming back. I don't know if it'll be this afternoon, if it'll be tomorrow, or if it'll be another thousand years. He's not slow as you might count slowness. He's faithful. And he's patiently waiting that all might have a chance to hear the good news. To hear the gospel whose name is Jesus. And the only way they're going to hear that is if we tell them. He left the story with you and me with imperfect, broken people. And if we're not showing Jesus to others, if we're not displaying God's love, they'll never hear it. And he'll come back, and they'll never been told. And that's the only thing that can kill hope. I love you guys. I hope that you've enjoyed talking about the gospel. Rick will be back next week. Uh, if, you're, if you're excited about the gospel, if you love Jesus, we like to celebrate communion. Communion was something that Jesus instituted with his disciples in the uh, upper room on the night he was crucified, and it tied them back to Genesis 15. If you don't know that, if that's new to you, talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you how it all connects. But communion is available out front. There's some crackers and juice. 
encourage you to partake in that, partake in that with your families. Remember the hope that is in Jesus because that's contained in that cracker and juice.